Solway, at Gratis Ingenio, at Capum, Mrs. Sum, Hospice, Tuis, Marcus Resenius. Yeah, huh? and uh, I'm DJ Gagnon, your other host who speaks English. <laughs> yes, well, you know, this is part two <laughs> of our wonderful multi-multi-chapter uh, epic on all of ancient Rome, be it the monarchy, the republic, or, or the empire. And so I figured we'd get into a little bit of Latin today. Now, that's just a rough translation. That's roughly... It's a little bit better than Google Translate, but not much. I mean, I'm very rusty, and my Latin to English dictionary is very, uh, very weathered and dog-eared. But that's pretty much close. So, hello, welcome to the Wit and Whiskey Cast. <laughs> uh, this is part two of Ancient Roman Whiskey. I think we're gonna get it done in three parts. I know DJ's praying we do. <laughs> yeah, this may be our first season that goes past fifteen episodes, folks. We could very easily do 15 episodes just on Rome. Uh, and, you know, who knows? Maybe when we expand this to, you know, wh- when the 1821 Studios Network becomes a thing and, you know, we get all of our spinoffs, like all these podcast uh, base shows do. You know, every host gets their own spinoff. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll just do nothing but Rome all the time and you'll never see my fat ass again. But we're not doing that. We're at the Witten Whiskey cast. We are going to have 15 episodes this season. Honest to goodness. <laughs> And uh, what did you do this week, buddy? Are, are you still bleeding? We were talking about this a little bit off air. Yeah, I, um, I, I spend years in martial arts without injuring myself and then climbing the stairs with my drink in hand tonight. I somehow took a chunk out of my thumb. So that's where we're drink at okay? today. Uh, drink is good. Yeah, I only spilled okay, a little good. bit of it. Um, I mean, priorities, right? Well, I mean, if you spilled your drink on your thumb, you'd disinfect it, so... Because, you know, alcohol cleans wounds. I'm, it depends on the proof. and But yes, <laughs> sure. Uh, you see, folks, he can't let me have any joke. No <laughs> jokes this week, apparently. Probably not this one, though. Um, but anywho, uh, aside from that, uh, Friday we got um, the latest entry in the Pokemon series, Pokemon Arceus Legends, and uh, that has consumed my entire life. I did see something about that when I booted up the Switch over the weekend. They were like, hey, why don't you buy this? And I was like, no, thank you. More Animal Crossing, please. <laughs> uh, how is it? I, I have not read any reviews or seen any screenshots or heard anything. So I am a blank slate that you can mold to your, your wanting. Oh, man. I mean, I could do a whole episode. I could do another episode on Pokemon. But um, the... Arceus Legends is considered a spinoff, but it's the first one that actually takes the main canon and rewinds time. So it's set in basically ancient Pokemon times. Um, it, it's uh, very like all the architecture and the, the like technology of the game is very like uh, like feudal Japan era type stuff. Uh, so like Pokeballs are kind of archaic and. Um, but it's also like a weirdly interesting survivally take on Pokemon where, uh, like all of the fluffy, like happy, everybody partners with Pokemon and the Pokemon world is wonderful is like, it's not there in the world and everybody's legitimately terrified to leave their settlements because Pokemon will kill them. Well, I mean, that's, you know, kind of fair. Yeah, it's... It's kind of amazing. I've party wiped three times without, like, 
it, like I was I was going hard and just ended up wiping. Like I, it was, it's the first Pokemon game I've played that wasn't like a fan made game that's legitimately difficult. Um, you know, I am constantly three or four levels under where I should be, despite my best efforts. And, uh, like, there's very few trainer battles. It's all about, like, noble Pokemon going fucking crazy. And uh, it is the first game in the series where Pokemon fight humans. Okay. So, so we, you know, we have a little bit of the Colosseum here, which we're going to talk about next week, but I can take it. Yeah. You know, gladiators versus animals. I'm, in, I'm into it. Yeah, you'll be out and about in the wild, and all of a sudden you'll get struck by lightning by a Pokemon. <laughs> so I uh, highly recommend it. If anybody uh, is either a huge fan of the series or maybe hasn't wanted to get in because it was too cutesy of a series and too much for kids, this one amps up the, the meta pretty high. So uh, I highly recommend it. The story is really interesting. Yeah, shameless plug, game of the year. Wow, that's pretty bold. Are you like the Canadian whiskey people we had on last week? You know, we're five weeks into the year now, and you're naming the game of the year. Yeah, I'm calling. I'm calling my shot right now, folks. Game of the year, Pokemon Arceus get, Legends. Get that drop, folks. We'll, we'll maybe next season because by that point it'll be uh, spring into the early summer. Maybe we'll do a you know gaming year in review, half year in review, and we'll see. Uh, just how good or bad that pick is that holds up. Yeah, yeah, it'd be pretty good. How about you, man? What'd you get up to this week? Uh, well, the uh, fairly certain that the wife's car got hit with an EMP. Oh, no. <laughs> she was coming home on Saturday uh, from St. Conrad's and uh, just a total and complete failure of every electrical system to the point where, you know, of course, on modern cars, everything is electric. So I had to break the shifter just to engage neutral because there's an electronic lock on the shifter. We could not get the key out of the ignition because there's an electronic ignition lock, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the old man currently has that in a shoebox, which means I've been driving the IROC in the snow. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> And it's kind of taking me back, well, I was going to say it's taking me back to when my hair is long, but I never, you know, back when I had hair. And uh, driving a rear-wheel drive, fairly powerful car in the winter with some niggling faults. I hadn't fixed everything that's wrong with it yet because I didn't think I was going to be driving it so soon. So, you know, there's no radio, there's no cigarette lighter, there's a few little odd and in rattles, but uh, it is kind of fun, the looks you get, going back and forth to work in this, in the weather we're having. So we, we have that going for us, uh, which I guess is nice. You know, I, I don't know if it is or it isn't. Uh, but otherwise, work's been kind of fun. I got interviewed today for the largest uh, television station in our media market for some bullshit nothing burger story. <clears throat> The uh, big wigs at the station think someone is running around stealing historical markers when in actuality they're just being taken down to be cleaned and repaired. So I got to lead the 5 o'clock news with the one-liner, there is no black market for illegal historical marker trading. <laughs> Which uh, I've been getting quite a bit of grief for uh, from my friends and co-patriots in this area. 
because it is the largest media mar- you know it is the largest station in the media market so a lot of people do watch it and uh, it's like anything else when you do TV a uh, little pro tip for anybody if you've ever done TV and radio to a lesser extent but certainly TV they will come in and they will interview you for at least 25 minutes to a half an hour and they will use maybe 15 seconds of what you said yeah and chances are if you make a joke it's going on air <laughs> so you know hey we have that uh, it's February now woohoo <laughs> Only two more months till the winter is over. We actually had, today was the day we eclipsed, at least around here, 10 hours of daylight. Oh, that's pretty good. We had 10 hours and three minutes today, so there's hope, folks. I love that. <sighs> but speaking of hope, what are you drinking? Because alcohol gives us hope, whiskey gives us hope. It does. Uh, so we're, uh, we're closing out the season with uh, all cocktails all the time. Uh, so I am... Uh, I'm drinking a drink that I've actually wanted to try for a while, and I don't know why I never really pulled the the trigger until recently, but uh, I am drinking a Caipirinha. Have you ever had one of these? I can't say I have. Uh, It's pretty great, honestly. Um, So it it uses a Brazilian spirit called Cachaça. Uh, So uh, coming at you hard with some some C words that you're going to have a hard time looking up later. Uh, but cachaça is a Brazilian liquor uh, that is very close to rum. Uh, it, it, it's kind of the same sort of thing where it's distilled sugar, essentially. Uh, the main difference between uh, rum and cachaça is that rum is normally made from molasses, whereas uh, cachaça is made from fresh sugarcane juice, uh, which is fermented and then distilled. Okay. So pretty interesting stuff. Um, there, if you've ever heard of uh, rum agricole uh, out of the French Caribbean, that's always uh, also made the same way that cachaça is. Uh, cachaça comes in two main varieties. Uh, it's a little bit like tequila in this way, where there is a clear unaged cachaça and there is the aged, quote, golden cachaça. So I, I'm drinking a, an aged ca- uh, cachaça tonight that is uh, aged in oak barrels. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty tasty stuff. Oak uh, is good shit. Oak it, improves everything. Changed it, my mind. Yeah, it really does. Uh, so caipirinhas are pretty damn tasty. It is the uh, Brazil National Cocktail, uh, which I, I thought was really interesting. It's, um, it's a lot of fucking sugar for a cocktail, uh, but <laughs> the way that it's made, uh, it doesn't actually come out that sweet, which is pretty interesting. Uh, so it basically takes three quarters of a lime chopped up into like quarter wedges. And then you throw that in a cocktail shaker with a sugar cube and three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, one to one. And then you muddle it all up. Uh, and then pour in two ounces of cachaça, shake it all up with some ice, and then you pour everything in the shaker right into your rocks glass, uh, including all of the broken up ice, all of that good stuff. It's very similar in appearance to like um, a whiskey smash. Uh, you okay. know, one of my favorite cocktails. There's just no mint. So you're getting the heavy hit of the the lime, you're getting that backbone of sweetness behind it, and the cachaça is just fantastic. Um, I, I prefer cachaça over rum, personally. I, I also really like rum agricole. Um, so if you're, if you're looking for 
If you like rum, but you want to try a slightly different flavor profile, definitely check out Cachaca. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to find in the world. Uh, in that I think I found two varieties when I went to the liquor store like months ago to try try out a Cachaca uh, cocktail. Um, but yeah, so the, the recipe is the Caipirinha uh, that is spelled C-A-I-P-I-R-I-N-H-A. Uh, so you can find it later. Uh, Caipirinha, uh, and it is the uh, the national cocktail of Brazil, and I I love it. This thing's great, so definitely check it out. Hmm. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look into that. How about you, buddy? Well, I I know I made fun of you the other week. It's like, oh, you said you were going to do cocktails, and I was going to do whiskey, and blah 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 blah. Well, last week, uh, if you remember, I did a cocktail. I did the New York Sour, mm. and. I am just in love with that drink. I think it's fantastic. I've been drinking them all week. If you follow me on the various social medias, you, you've seen the pictures. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go into this with an open mind. I'm going to look for another cocktail, and maybe I'll hit something else to put into the regular rotation. <laughs> and I came across the rather aptly named for this series, Roman Punch. Nice. And... Uh, Basically, it's kind of like a Monte Carlo, uh, just mixed up a little bit. Uh, it has two shots of Benedictine. <laughs> Your You're favorite. I do like Benedictine, so I'm okay with this. You're supposed to put two shots of cognac in it, but cognac is just vile and hatred. So I changed it to two shots of rye, which is delicious and happiness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't like cognac? Oh, God, no. Oh, Jesus, fuck no. Are there, any, to think. Are there any brandies that you like? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll drink, uh, I'll drink regular, like, just kind of straight brandy. Uh, I'll drink Christian Rollers with the old man. I'm not crazy about it, but I'll drink it. Uh, if we're doing shots and someone else is buying, I'll drink LaRue. But again, I don't really like it. Uh, but no, cognac just is fucking vile and hate-filled, and <laughs> no, just, mm, I'm trying to think, what? God, you heard it what here they... first, folks, Mark is going to pass on this alcohol. Mm. Have I never mentioned my, my hatred of cognac before on The Wit and Whiskey? I don't or... think we've ever talked about this. Oh, well, we'll have to do an episode on that, um, but yeah, no, so rye instead of cognac, uh, a shot of lemon juice and a shot of white rum. You put it all into a shaker with a load of ice. You shake the fuck out of it till it's good and frosty and you can't hold it anymore. And then much like your drink, you dump the whole thing, ice and all, into your glass. Man, I love it. It gives such a nice rustic feel to your cocktail. It does. Uh, because of that, I took a punt and I use one of my giant fishbowl brandy sifters, actually. (laughs) That way I just get everything fucking in there. Uh, It's kind of yellowy. It kind of looks like, almost like a weak whiskey sour because the white rum kind of dilutes the color. But it's thicker because the Benedictine's almost more of a syrup. So it's, it's a little bit thicker than it looks, if that makes any sense. Nice. And it's pretty good. Uh, you get the spices from the Benedictine. You get the sugar from the rum. Uh, you 
pretty much the only thing you get from the rye, if we're honest, is the burn, but that's okay. And it's all coming together. It's very good. I would definitely drink this again, but I don't think I'm going to go as gaga over this as I did the New York Sour. Oh, uh, well, I mean... But that being said, this being a punch, if you were to do a giant pitcher of these uh, for a party during the summer somewhere, that would be a fucking win. I would be all about that. Nice. So, hey, away, true to Kaiser. I'll drink the Roman, uh, the Roman punch to that. <laughs> I love that journey for you. <laughs> All right, what's tools of the trade? All right, I, I'm going to do a really small tools of the trade today. I figured we could talk a little bit. We've talked about muddling. We've talked about shaking. We've talked about citrus a bit in the past. And I wanted to go a little bit deeper on, uh, like, the, the interplay between citrus and sugar. Uh, so well, that's fitting, considering what both of us are drinking. Yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> Uh, with cocktails like the Roman Punch, uh, the Caipirinha, the Whiskey Smash, you're doing some interesting things with your citrus that you maybe aren't doing with a cocktail like, say, a daiquiri or a mojito, where you're, you're squeezing the citrus in. So, uh, on one hand, with a, you know, a juiced cock, uh, a juiced citrus in a cocktail, you're, you're squeezing that juice in, you're using the fresh juice, maybe you're using sour mix if you're, if you, you know, you were going off of efficiency or whatever. Um, with the other side here, with these, these smashed up and, and muddled cocktails, uh, and I think I've talked a little bit about this in the, in the past, the, the idea of expressing the oils, right? Uh, you take an old-fashioned, and the very last step of an old-fashioned is to take that orange peel and express those oils into the, the top of that cocktail so you get, like, a nice aromatic, um, you know, th- there's there's some s- engaging your s- the rest of your senses, right? Yeah, you want all five to be working in harmony. Yeah. Uh, with this muddling, uh, your nose doesn't really come into it, right? You know, the, the oils are still there. You're still going to smell them, but you're not simply expressing the oils to... Uh, get them on your 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 smell. You're getting it in your taste as well. And there is a big difference between just the juice and the juice and the oils, right? It's another layer of complexity on top of it. So if you're going to make one of these cocktails, you've got the citrus, you've got the sugar. A lot of these cocktails where it's just throw the whole chunk of fruit with the peel and all in the, the shaker and muddle it, you're going to see that... Uh, a lot of those have a sugar cube or some raw sugar and or some simple syrup. And I was actually kind of curious as to why the Caipirinha has both a sugar cube and simple syrup. Because you would think, in terms of sweetness, one would be enough. You know, if you take out the sugar cube and add a little bit more simple syrup, isn't it the same kind of thing? And uh, my research popped up today with the fact that when you are when you put in that raw sugar, the, the granulated sugar, the sugar cube, um, you know, if you're getting fancy with, you know, turbinado sugar or whatever, whatever strikes your fancy, if you're, you're going with a granulated, like, solid sugar, the, the crystals in the sugar while you're muddling, they're going to rip up the citrus. And it actually does a lot to... Uh, get the oils out of the skins of your citrus. So whether it's 
lemon, lime, grapefruit, orange, whatever it happens to be that you're you're muddling in this this shaker, uh, that sugar is just going to grind things up and bring the oils out faster. And the as the oils come out and infuse into the sugar, the sugar starts to dissolve, and then you don't really have to worry about you know shaking it extra hard or making sure you muddle forever. Um, the the main reason why in cocktails you don't generally do granulated sugar is because it doesn't it doesn't dissolve easily in cold liquids. Uh, but in this case where you're muddling and you've got some of the simple syrup in there while you're muddling, you've got the raw sugar, you've got the 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 citrus, uh, it's all just gonna kind of meld together really nicely and the sugar dissolves pretty quickly. So when you're muddling, you know, we like to say, you know, don't be afraid to really get in there with your muddler. But also, you know, there's no need to completely masticate every single piece of fruit in there, right? And, you know, if you're doing something like berries, maybe you really want to get that pretty fine with your muddling. But with these kind of, I, I like to consider these like rustic uh, drinks where, where you're going to take everything the shaker and pour it into the glass. Really just take your time and be careful with it. You don't have to go crazy uh, with really beating up the citrus. And to be perfectly honest, if you get a cocktail where somebody's done that, it's not going to look very nice. Now, you like to see the, the citrus floating around in your glass, but if it's completely torn up and, and ripped up, you know maybe you'll be getting a little bit more of that pulp in your mouth. Maybe that's not really the taste that you wanted. It's not going to look as, as pretty. So j- just keep in mind that as you're, as you're muddling, you want to kind of, uh, get in there, do the muddle, but but go a little gentle. There's no need to rip everything up as you go. So I, I, I thought that was kind of an interesting fact that I didn't realize before. I was just having flashbacks while you were talking because, you know, as a boy, my parents sent me to a Catholic grade school and the nuns used to tell us not to masticate as well. So, um. God damn it, Mark. <laughs> what? It's not they the did. same word. <laughs> they, they did. Well, hey, you're the one talking about getting pulp in your mouth and uh, <laughs> different things. So he thinks I don't listen, ladies and gentlemen. I listen too well. For That's fuck's sake, what the fuck is whiskey news? Okay, well, I was going through, and generally what I do is I just uh, look for a day or two for just various whiskey headlines or whatever catches my eye or is vaguely relevant to the topic Uh I pick. Well, this week I just saw a headline that made me laugh. And the the full story is actually rather interesting, but the headline is uh, Drake's Virginia Black Whiskey Deemed the Absolute Worst, in quotation, Celebrity Liquor. What? No. Now, uh, I don't exactly know who Drake is. I know of him. I've seen pictures of him. I could pull him out of a lineup. But I, I don't know what his supposed claim to fame is. I believe that uh, he's just another Paris Hilton. He's just famous for being famous. And uh, apparently he has a Virginia Black True American Whiskey, which is ironic because I believe he's Canadian. Yes. If I remember correctly. Yes, but he's making American whiskey. And uh, there was a series of reviews uh, for all types of celebrity liquors. Um Chirac Vodka, uh, Jay-Z's Ace of Spades, all this different stuff. And this study was done by money.co.uk. 
and they averaged the average cost of 85 celebrity wines and spirits and then compared them to their average ratings uh, on various websites. Uh, The prices and the ratings were then scored to rank each alcohol out of 100. Drake's brand came out as the worst value, both the worst overall liquor and the worst liquor for value. And it was not close in either one. (laughs) Uh, but this study actually gives you a top 10 and I'm going to read the top 10 because some of these people I've heard of, some of them I haven't. And hopefully you can, uh, uh, help me out with this. So this is according to money.co.uk. These are the 10 worst celebrity liquors. Are you ready? All right, let's see it. Number 10 is some woman I've never heard of. Rita Ora. No. Uh, and she has a Prospero Tequila Año. Number nine, I don't agree with. Number nine is bullshit. Number nine, they have Dan Aykroyd and Crystal Head Vodka listed. No, Crystal Head is good. (laughs) Crystal Head is good shit. That is bullshit. Number eight, you're not going to agree with, DJ. Because the eighth worst celebrity liquor of all time is Metallica's Blackened Whiskey. Oh, that's bullshit. That was actually pretty good. Uh, Number seven, I guess I should say it like this, is uh, Bob Dylan. His Heaven's Door straight bourbon whiskey. That doesn't surprise me. Everything Bob Dylan does is expensive and overrated. Uh, number six is Eva Longoria, who's a bikini model or something, I think. Uh, she's another one with a tequila. Casa del Sol Tequila Reposato. That's the number sixth worst of all time. Uh, number five is Jamie Foxx. He does the commercials for gambling. And he has a brown sugar bourbon whiskey that's apparently terrible, according to this. He was also pretty good as Electro. Sure. <laughs> uh, number four is someone I have no clue who it is. Darius Rucker. Uh, he makes that's another whiskey. Hootie from Hootie and the Blowfish. Wow. I legitimately thought he was dead until you said that. No. Okay. Well, I learned something today. I learned two things. I learned his name and that he's still alive. Uh, he has a whiskey that's the fourth worst uh, of all time. Uh, number three is another underwear model, David Beckham. That guy's uh, a, isn't he like a football dude? No, he doesn't play football. Yeah, uh, he plays the, the British one. Oh, well, nobody gives a fuck about that. In America, <laughs> he, he models underwear. He's like a Calvin Klein model or something. Uh, he apparently has a single grain, not single malt, big difference, scotch whiskey. That is the third worst of all time. Number two, another person I have no idea, Brett Ratner. Don't know who he is. Uh, Hill Haven Lodge whiskey is worse. And the number one, as we said, is Drake with the Virginia Black American whiskey. So uh, as I often say, most celebrities, at least in America, don't really have a fifth grade education. And they can't make whiskey either. And uh, I don't know why that's a surprise to anybody. Yeah, Drake, you know, of Degrassi fame. I'm sure, is that some type of boy band? No, Uh, it was a Canadian teen drama from, like, the early 2000s. Do you watch Canadian television? I've seen some Degrassi. Oh, and I've seen, what's the one with the the Mountie who goes to, like, New York? Due South. What are you on about? Due South is pretty good. 
Although I guess I shouldn't charge you too hard because I believe originally Kids in the Hall was just Canadian only. Well, hey, you could do a three-parter on Canada next season. How's that? Um, <laughs> we could talk about poutine. And I do food. like poutine, though. We could talk about Trudeau. Uh, I don't know. We stay away from politics on the wit and whiskey. <laughs> but I like poutine, though. All right, should we get into it this week so we can actually get done by about three hours? Yeah, I think that's probably good. So just remember that Caesar was a tyrant. All right, go ahead, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) So last week, uh, if you listened to our episode, you know that we covered roughly 700 years uh, of the Roman monarchy and the Roman Republic, and we stopped as the first triumvirate was forming. And... For reasons that we're going to discuss, that technically was not the end of the Republic. They still sort of worked in the Republic system, but you get to see the beginnings of the end. So we're going to cover about another 530 years, give or take, today. And again, this is going to be very, 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 very quick. might not seem like it, but I mean, again, this is any one of these we could do several hours on. So very quick hits. We're going to blast through this, go through the first triumvirate, the Roman Civil War, the second triumvirate, and then the Roman Empire itself. And then, as we said, next week we're going to talk about some of the lasting institutions. So buckle up. Here we go. Uh, DJ, if you have any questions, feel free to jump in as we go. All right. So the first triumvirate, which is where we left off last week, 60 BCE to 53 BCE. And the first triumvirate was Gaius Julius Caesar, Marcus Licinius Crassus, Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus. Those were the three gentlemen. Or just to keep it simple for you Anglophiles, Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. Now, this was a loose, informal political alliance. This was not anything set in stone. These were not formally recognized in any type of government way or legal way. Uh, Everybody knew they were working together, but it was really nothing you can kind of prove. It was kind of like the mafia. You know it's there, but you can't prove it if you're doing it right. And contrary to popular belief, all three of these men were actually working towards their own goals. Yes, they were an alliance. Yes, they were helping one another, but they were doing it to achieve what they wanted. Um, It's kind of like when DJ and I go out. He knows I'm grumpy and antisocial, so he bribes me with tacos and whiskey, so we'll go somewhere. (laughs) Uh, At the end, everybody gets what they want. (laughs) That's kind of the way it is. Um, Now, this alliance rose out of friction between the plebeians and the nobles. The plebeians, of course, being the uh, common man, the the vast majority of citizens within Rome. And they were having friction with the wealth divide in the country, with the land ownership, with uh, having to pay the majority of taxes and debts. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar, folks, but hey, it's been going on for literally thousands of years. Now, so what did everybody want? Well, Caesar wanted to be consul, which we talked about the consul system last week. And he wanted to continue on with his campaigns, especially in Western Europe, uh, in Gaul and Hispania and that area, which is France and Spain today. And he wanted to continue being governor of different territories. He had been governor of Hispania, and he would go on to be a governor of Gaul for over a decade. 
Pompey, he wanted land reforms. Remember, we talked about the Gracchi brothers last week. They attempted to do land reforms. Pompey wanted to do this again, and he also wanted veterans' pensions. Pompey was a general, much like Caesar was. And so uh, he wanted his men returning from campaign to be well paid, to have land for a plot of, uh, for a farm, for a house, and he wanted the land to be more evenly distributed between the nobles and the plebeians and the returning soldiers. Uh, he also wanted the Senate just to honor various promises they made. Uh, newsflash, folks, politicians lie, like kind of a lot, mm-hmm. and the Roman Senate was no... Uh, no different. Now, Roman historians, as we talked about last week, Romans love to write about Rome. And since it was around for over a thousand years, they wrote about Roman history quite a bit. There's loads of sources about what Caesar wanted. There's loads of sources about what Pompey wanted. Nobody really says much about what Crassus wanted. Uh, Caesar brought him in to be the third man, uh, to you know, to firm that up and to act as a buffer between him and Crassus, but it also had to heal because in 50, uh, or rather in 70 BC, Crassus and Pompey were consul together. Remember, as we said last week, there were two consuls at a time and the term did not go well and they were not on speaking terms. So here we were 10 years later, Caesar had to be the sort of impetus to get the two of them to reconcile and boom, here you have uh, the triumvirate. And this was an alliance of the three biggest political influences in Roman life at the time. These men were, had been generals, they had been consuls, they'd been governors, they'd been senators. Pretty much any major office you could hold in Rome, all three of these men had held at one time or another and would hold again as we go forward. Basically, imagine, God, Barack Obama, I, Dwight Eisenhower, and... Shit, I'm trying to think of a third person that would be of the same level. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Imagine the three of them forming a political alliance in America when they were all in their prime. Mm -hmm. That's roughly what you have here. It's important to note, though, they worked within the structure of the republic. They used the republic systems of the Senate and of the consulship, etc., to their benefit. They are not usurping the republic, at least not yet. Now, Caesar be- was able to become consul like he wanted in 59 BCE, and he immediately passed an extended version of Pompey's land reforms, giving land to not just returning troops, but to pretty much everybody, taking a bunch of land from the nobles, a bunch of land from the Senate, and saying, here you go, plebeians, here's some land. Uh, he also passed the uh, pension law that Pompey wanted. He expanded that as well. And he also began a very ambitious form of debt and loan forgiveness. Again, does any of this sound familiar, folks? Because of this, he immediately got the plebeians on his side and immediately had the hatred from the nobles. He used this hatred... Uh, to be able to frame his co-consul, Babilius, for an attempted assassination. Now, someone did actually come at Caesar with a dagger all the way back in 59 BCE, before he was formally assassinated. Uh, If you believe Caesar, it was uh, Babilius and uh, Cicero sending someone after him. Uh, 
if you believe the nobles, it was Caesar staging his own attempted assassination. Regardless, it only made the plebeians love him more. They actually they paid for a bodyguard. He had, he, whenever he was out in public, he had a bodyguard that was uh, given by the people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he it just instantly threw him even more towards, look, you know, the nobles hate you so much they're trying to take me out for helping you. Uh, after his year as consul, Caesar went off to Gaul, and he became the governor of Gaul for a five-year term. While Pompey uh, was named to a new office that hadn't existed prior to this, where he was the head of grain distribution within Rome itself. And this was after the triumvirate had passed a free grain distribution law that their detractors say caused a grain shortage. So it's a pretty neat way. You cause the shortage, and then you get elected to the office to fix it. Kind of fun job security. Now, while Caesar was away, Crassus and Pompey would further his goals, either by pressuring the current consuls in the Senate, uh, standing for consul themselves, which they did in 55 BCE, because remember, while you only had a one-year term as consul, and while you couldn't serve consecutive terms, you could serve as many terms as you wanted as, they, as long as they weren't consecutive. So Crassus and Pompey were consul together in 70 BCE, and then again in 55 BCE as part of the triumvirate. When they weren't actively running themselves, they were hand-picking the consuls. Now, as part of all this, Caesar had actually given his daughter Julia to Pompey to be his wife. Oof. Uh, well, it's a bigger oof because Julia was actually betrothed through another man at the time. But damn it, we have to firm up these political alliances. Uh, and in 50 BCE, Julia unfortunately died. And this began a rift between Pompey and Caesar. By this point, Crassus had been killed in battle. He had left Rome and said, I want to be a general again. I want to be a soldier again. He had died in Asia Minor. And so now the triumvirate is starting to break up. Crassus is gone. Caesar is off in Gaul campaigning. And they don't have this familiar connection. So Pompey's the only one left in Rome, and the nobles are really starting to sway him. Because at this point, you have what's referred to in a lot of contemporary Roman writings as class tensions, in air quotes. And this is rioting. This is violent mobs in the streets uh, attacking plebeians and nobles on both sides. A civil war in all but name. You don't have armies marching around, but you just have constant violence and rioting going on. Think of the summer of 2020, but way bigger scale and in a much smaller area. Because, you know, Italy's a much smaller country than America. So the Senate says to Pompey, hey, we can set you in as dictator. We could declare an emergency. We could put you in as dictator. You could fix this. You just have to ally with us. And Pompey's kind of waffling, and he's doing this. And Caesar says, well, I'm going to stand for consul again. I'm going to run for consul again. But, you know, I'm in Gaul, so I'm going to run, and I'm going to stand in abstentia. Now, yes, this was an uncommon request. If you were running for consul, you were supposed to return to Rome and present yourself in person. However, it wasn't that uncommon. Uh, it had been done before. People had stood for consul in absentia before. But the Senate says, nope, 
if you want to be Consul Caesar, you have to come back from Gaul. You have to return the legions we've loaned you. You have to disband your armies. You have to turn in your generalship, retire. We want you to come back as a common man. And if you just come back as a common man, not a military officer, and stand for consul, then we'll elect you. Pompey does a really lackluster defense of Caesar in the Senate. He basically says, well, hey, you know, we've done this before, and people could stand in abstentia before, and it's fine. And the Senate goes, no. And he goes, well, hey, I tried. (laughs) And word gets back to Caesar about this, and he's pissed. (laughs) And this essentially ends the triumvirate in 49 BC. So... Because of this, the Senate, as we said, is forced to ally with Pompey. He's quelling the rioting. He's quelling the violence. And now that the home front is sort of secure, they turn their eyes on Caesar because he's their main threat. He had several legions, a a decent-sized army at his disposal. He had a lot of money because they were plundering and looting Gaul. He controlled all that land. He was expanding Gaul. He was expanding on the Iberian Peninsula, Basically, the big chunk of what we now consider Western Europe was under Caesar's control. So he was the number one threat. Uh, Using this attempt of his to stand uh, as consul as a pretense, they said, you know, you have to resign your command and disband your legions, as we said. They basically told him, you're done. You're either going to be a politician or you're going to be a general, thinking that he wanted to be consul more than anything else, and he would just say, okay. That being said, having been prepared for war for over a decade, because he had one five-year term as governor of Gaul, uh, he was elected to another five-year term as governor of Gaul, and this was all after his consulship. He had been governor of Hispania even before that. So he's been campaigning for the better part of 15, 20 years. And depending on what you read, there was a chance that he was going to be tried for irregularities from his term as consul, because if you remember, we had said that basically once a consul's one-year term is over, if the Senate or the plebes don't like him, they're going to come after you and you're going to be on trial for any crimes or misdemeanors, real or otherwise, that may have happened. Sources dither on whether or not this was a real threat. Uh, we don't think that he really did anything that actually would have been illegal, but his enemies would have prosecuted him. And he had everything going on with the triumvirate, so you could make the argument that it was a conspiracy. But different sources argue whether or not this was actually something he had to worry about. But he said, I'm not going to worry about any of that. Boom, I'm just going to attack. And by his own reason, it was out of pride. He had to defend his, his own dignity. He writes about this in his commentaries. So on January 7th, 49 BCE, uh, Caesar was marked as an enemy of the state. And he crossed the Rubicon into Rome three days later on January 10th, the Rubicon being the big river in the northern part of Italy. So he crossed from Europe proper into Italy, because, of course, this is all considered Rome, and that was, you know, you're on the home country now. And legend states that as he crossed the Rubicon, he said, alia iacta est, which, DJ, do you remember from high school Latin what that means? Not even a little bit. The die has now been cast. Ah, very good. There's no going back now. My guess was going to be Beware the Ides of March. No, that's later. We're coming to that. (laughs) (laughs) By March 3rd, he had driven Pompey's much larger force from Italy because 
While Caesar had most of the western force, he had several legions, Pompey had the bulk of the Roman army. The Senate had declared Caesar in open revolt. He was an enemy of the state. It would be like a rogue general trying to take a couple of battalions from the U.S. Army. We would still have the bulk of it. Uh, but, you know, Pompey's men weren't the most disciplined. They were tired. They had been facing all of the rioting and everything. They hadn't seen any real campaigning because most of the force that was doing the campaigning was what Caesar was commanding. So even though they were much larger, they were overrun easily. Basically, by the time they mobilized, Caesar had three major towns in northern Italy already. Uh, and more importantly, while he was marching on Rome itself, Caesar's army never looted anyone. They never burned any houses or towns. They never raped. They never pillaged. And this was very important because if you were to go through and to take a poll of the plebeians during this civil war, Yes, you had some diehard Caesar fans. Yes, you had some diehard Pompey fans. But 70 to 75% of them were neutral. They just wanted whoever was going to give them food and let them work and live in peace. So by not disturbing their homeland, Caesar was courting allies. Likewise, if he ever went into a town where some of his political enemies were, he granted them clemency. He didn't execute anyone. Uh, by the following January, so a year later, after campaigns in Spain, Greece, and Africa, again, we're talking about these are world wars before world wars, folks. Uh, Pompey was dead. He was killed in Egypt. And Caesar was horrified by this because there was sort of a mini civil war going on in Egypt between uh, Ptolemy and Cleopatra. And Caesar was chasing Pompey all over the world, like Carmen Sandiego. And he gets to Egypt. And the, the two sisters that are fighting the Civil War, they meet him on the docks and go, hey, look what we did. And they hand him Pompey's head. Jesus. <laughs> and Caesar's just appalled by this because he wanted to bring him back to Rome and have a trial in the whole nine yards. That being said, it did take the better part of three more years of warfare against Pompey, Pompey's allies, uh, traitorous parts of Caesar's army who thought he was weak and that they could take over, and then the Egyptian civil war that I mentioned, eventually Cleopatra, of course, would win, as we know. And so it was not until 44 BCE that Caesar is named Dictator Perpetuo. There you go, Dicta everybody. Caesar is a dictator. Great episode. <laughs> and that takes us to the reign of Gaius Julius Caesar which despite popular opinion was very short, 46 to 44 BCE. Many places only list 44 BCE, because again, that was when he was named originally dictator for 10 years and then dictator for life. But the last two years when he was chasing these little remnant armies all over the place, he was in control. If you controlled Rome, you were in control. Uh, so he had the title of dictator. He also named Octavius his heir, which will come into play later. He reformed the Pontifus Maximus, which was the chief priest, and he introduced the Julian calendar, which we talked about during our holiday episode. This is also when he wrote his commentaries, which was basically his memoirs, and he's rewriting his version of Roman history. And if you've ever taken a high school Latin class, you've translated at least some of the commentaries. All of Gauls divided into three parts. Everybody knows all that. Um... Despite all this, he kept the Republic going, at least officially, at least for show. You still had the tribunes, you still had the Senate, um, you still had consuls, although they were technically subservient, etc. 
But 44 BC saw no less than three major incidents that were marked by his Roman historians as what drove the senators to eventually assassinate him. Uh, first, he was in the Senate, and the Senate was going to present him with more honors, more titles, more honors. And as ritual and history would state, he was supposed to stand up and graciously acknowledge the Senate and accept all of these honors. And Caesar instead remained seated and said, I could do with less honors and titles, not more. <laughs> and this was such a slap in the face to the Senate. Oh, it was worse than anything he'd ever done to that point. You know, here's a man who's calling himself dictator for life, but God damn it, he won't stand up. <laughs> We're going to kill him. Uh, he then later disbanded the tribunes of the plebeians, saying, ah, you know, it's just bureaucracy, and the, the, the plebeians can speak to me directly, and they have representatives, and the Senate works as representatives. We don't need these offices anymore. So by doing both of those in quick succession, he pissed off both the Senate and the nobles and the plebeians all in one fell swoop. He would go places to give speeches or to visit, much in the same way politicians do today, and it became a habit in 44 BC of crowds to chant at him, Rex, 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 which as we know DJ means... Uh, king or emperor? Correct. Yeah. Yes, king. Uh, whereas in the Roman polytheistic religion only Jupiter was the king of Rome and Caesar would just kind of be like no Jupiter's the king I'm not the king uh, but he never really would he never really would tell people to stop I'd just be, be like no don't call me king uh. eventually the, the statue of him in Rome began to have a laurel wreath put around its head and uh, one time in the forum, Mark Anthony attempted to crown him with a laurel wreath, calling him Rex. And this was all a very public display, and Caesar took the wreath off and burned it as an offering to Jupiter, and once again said, no, Jupiter is the king of Rome, I'm not the king of Rome. And many people believe that this was all a setup, because of course Mark Anthony was Caesar's right-hand man, this was all a setup to see if the crowd would accept him as king. This was a test, this was a trial. And if you remember from last week, the Roman monarchy did not end well. And the Republic might end, they might have a triumvirate, they might have this, they might have that, but God damn it, they're not going to have a king anymore. So on the Ides of March, March 15th, 44 BCE, Caesar was famously murdered at the Forum. Now, we're not going to talk a lot about the conspiracy because... Uh, the Conspiracy Against Caesar is the ultimate school group project. 63 senators signed on to be part of the conspiracy. He only had 27 stab wounds, folks. Uh -huh. uh, there are stories of senators that were hedging their bets either way. When they see Caesar fall, they ran over and they rolled around in his blood, so they were all bloody, and they ran out and said, See, I killed Caesar! Ha-ha! And it also wasn't very popular with a big part of the, the country. So we're not going to go into the conspiracy. But this led to the second triumvirate, 43 BCE to 32 BCE. The second triumvirate was Octavian, Mark Antony, and Lepidus. So you have Caesar's right-hand man, Mark Antony, his heir, Octavian, and then a good general named Lepidus. This, however, unlike the first triumvirate, was a recognized legal body 
with power from the Senate that outranked everyone in Rome, including the consuls. They had a royal order to bring the conspirators to justice. Uh, They noted that Caesar's clemency was what got him killed. So the second triumvirate used systemic state-sponsored murder, and they brought back prescription. They brought back the draft. You were going to be drawn into the legions. Legions had always been voluntary, not under the second triumvirate. And they're going to go town to town, and if you have any of the conspirators or their family or their loved ones, we're going to torture the shit out of them and kill them. Uh, and it wasn't just the armies of Brutus and Crassus, but the whole list of nearly 70 people, as I mentioned. Uh, they also deified Caesar himself. He is now one of the gods. Still lesser than Jupiter, but he's now one of the gods in the Roman religion. Uh, not long after, because again, this only lasted nine years, Lepidus is exiled. He's made a priest, removed of all of his possessions and titles, and kicked off to an island in the Mediterranean somewhere. And then Mark Antony starts sleeping with Cleopatra, who had been sleeping with Caesar prior, and he thinks that's going to save him, but he thinks he's going to lead the Egyptians in revolt and take over from Octavius. No, they get destroyed in another civil war. And so Octavian takes the name of Augustus. And that takes us, finally, to the Roman Empire. (laughs) You know, I legitimately thought we were talking about the empire this whole time. See, now... I'm glad you brought that up because that is, I I don't want to say a common misconception because that makes, that sounds very derogatory, but that is a common uh, error people think of. And and it's uh, taught that way a lot too. Just, oh yeah, the Roman Empire lasted, you know, from the 700s BC all the way to 476 AD, blah, blah, blah. But there were the three distinct eras. So you have the monarchy, you have the republic, uh, You can even break out the triumvirates and the Civil War and all that chaos, and now you have the formal empire with uh, the rise of Octavian uh, and then who took the name Augustus. And so while Antony and Cleopatra were actually defeated in 32 BC, it's not until 27 BCE that Octavian took the name of Augustus, which for those of you playing the home game means the venerated one. (laughs) He likewise was given the title of Princeps Imperium by the Senate, uh, which basically means imperial first citizen, roughly, give or take. Uh, So 27 BCE is really officially when the empire itself starts. The last 700 plus years, none of that's been the empire. (laughs) Cool. And even now, while officially the Republic still existed, at least on paper, the Roman Constitution still had the power, the Senate, the uh, consuls, they even brought back the tribunes off and on. All of this still existed. All the structure, all of the bureaucracy was still there. Uh, Of course, in actuality, it was Augustus that held all the power. And unlike when Caesar was ruling, Augustus really didn't make any pretense about this however and here's the kicker that gets also doesn't really get taught a lot almost no one in rome by this point cared and the reason for that is the last 350 years or so had been constant warfare constant class riots food shortages uh civil wars 
foreign aggressors, barbarians, expansion, rationing, conscription, you name it, the last 350 years have not been that fun if you're a Roman citizen. Augustus now brings peace. And he brings order and he brings stability, something which has been lacking. And he made he named his heir uh, Tiburnius. Boom. Augustus dies. Tiburnius takes right back over. The system continues. Huh. And this all leads us to what is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And uh, it officially starts with Augustus. You often see it called the Pax Augustus. Uh, and it is just over 200 years of peace and tranquility and stability. Uh, after three centuries of chaos, you now go the full opposite way on the pendulum. During this time under Trajan, who was a few emperors later, uh, the Roman Empire reached its greatest height. When you see you know, the most common map with all of northern Africa taken over and uh, modern-day Portugal and Spain and France and half of England and then, you know, Italy and all through the Middle East and Turkey and everything, that huge map that surrounds the Mediterranean, that was under Trajan. Huh. You see all of the just massive stuff that we know Rome for today that we're going to talk about next week. The roads that, of course, all lead to Rome in one form or another. <laughs> massive wall projects, city building, aqueducts, Coinage, coinage, coinage. Go on eBay right now, folks. Pause this podcast. Go on eBay right now. Just punch in Roman coin. See how many results come up. Even today. Uh, you get skyscrapers. The Romans were the first people really to build skyscrapers. Although they didn't like it. They said it ruined the view. But they were doing it. Huge, massive construction projects, building projects. Uh... This 200-year period covered 16 emperors, give or take, both very good, Trajan, Augustus, Tiburnius, Marcus Aurelius. They were all in this reign. You had what they called the five good emperors uh, was in this period. You also had the bad. Caligula <laughs> was during this period. Oh, dear. Yeah, Caligula was during this period. Nero was during this period. How, weren't they, like, two of the most warlike, and this is the peaceful time? Well, you got to understand, they were warlike uh, against, you know, invisible enemies. Caligula declared war on Neptune. What? Had the, <laughs> he did. No, he declared war on Neptune, and he had the Legion attacking the sea with spears and pillums and things. Because <laughs> he was crazy. We didn't get syphilis now. But yeah, we, 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 we believe he has later stage syphilis now. Uh, although I really do enjoy Caligula. Be, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Just be, I, That's a great drop. Put that <laughs> out. That's a great drop. Yeah, that, that's a great drop. Pull that drop. No, um, because he was, at his heart, he was a troll. And at his heart, he was going to be the one who spoke last. You know, there's a there's the story that he was taken to sort of an oracle, a soothsayer, almost like in the Matrix, the original Matrix. And this oracle told him, you know, you, you don't have what it takes to be emperor. Um, in fact, sooner will a horse ride across the Mediterranean than you will become emperor. And so what was one of the first things he did after he became emperor? 
he had the legions build a pontoon bridge across the Iberian Strait, the Strait of Gibraltar, like the, the narrowest part between uh, Spain and Africa. They built this huge pontoon bridge, which at the time was the longest bridge in the world, and he rode his horse across the Mediterranean. Just to say, fuck you, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just cool shit like that. Uh, so it was both good and bad. <clears throat> However, this 200-year period un- ended under Commodus. Uh, Commodus was a dictator in the sense of the word that we think of it. He was a tyrant. He was brutal. He lived ruled by fear, uh, murder, reign of terror, and that was really the beginning of the end. You uh, often see it listed that under Commodus's reign, the empire of gold quickly turned into an empire of rust, which is such a great fucking quote. Jesus. This downfall was expedited in the 3rd century CE, or AD, for those of you using the old terminology, when both the Gallic Empire, which was England, France, the Low Countries, basically what we consider Western Europe, and the Palmyrene Empire, which was all of the Middle East, Asia Minor, Egypt, uh, another Judea revolution. Uh, The Holy Land revolted against Rome two or three times before this, and then two or three times after this. There's always been unrest in the Holy Land. It's nothing new, folks. Uh, but the Palmyrene Empire, which was all of that, they both broke away. So actually, you had three separate empires. You had the Roman Empire kind of in the middle, sandwiched between these two breakaway states. And you had numerous minor empires that dithered about. Most of them were just legionnaires or centurions. Just, ah, you're the emperor now. Cool. Uh to put that in for the reference from the years 238 CE to 275 CE, so not even 40 years here, folks, there were 21 different emperors. And the most common cause of death for all of these is listed as murdered by his own troops. People often argue about what led to the downfall of the Roman Empire. Was it the opulence? Was it, you know... Great, better generalship by the barbarians? Was it lead pipes? Was it Christianity? Was it moving the capital to Constantinople? It was this. No no country, no empire could do that. That, that is basically a new leader every two years. Nothing can function with that. Mm. Aurelian reunited the empire in 270 uh, CE, however. He brought everybody back in. He won a number of stunning victories, outmaneuvered and outfought everyone, and reunited everyone. However, it only lasted about 16 years because Diocletian, as part of his reforms in 286, actually set up two separate courts in the east and west and created what he called the Rule of Four. So there actually were four people, all co-emperor, uh, to divide up the power because he said the Roman Empire was just simply too big for one man to rule. And do you know what English word we get from Diocletian? I don't. Diocese. Oh, nice. Because he divided and divided and divided. He actually came up with the the, the diocese, which is still around today uh, in various religious forms. Uh, Between Aurelian and Diocletian, there had been six more emperors. So now you have 27 emperors within 46 years if you count Diocletian. Uh, Again, no no one can survive this. Under Constantine the Great, however who began to rule in 306 CE, Christianity rose up in the empire after centuries of persecution 
uh, Nero being the most famous one, but pretty much every emperor in one way or another persecuted the Christians or at the very least uh, denounced them. Uh, Christ, uh, Constantine also reunited Rome under one emperor again, and he decided to move the capital to Constantinople, which is today Istanbul. <laughs> to put all this into perspective, his reign lasted just under 31 years. So in 46 years, we had 27 emperors, and then in 31 years, we have one. See what I'm talking about with the pendulum swinging back and forth here, folks? It's a lot. Yeah. The end of the 300s, however, saw the beginnings of what we now call the Migration Period. This is traditionally called the Barbarian Invasions, but we're a little bit more PC now. We don't say Barbarian Invasions. People migrated. They weren't barbarians. Uh, were various Germanic tribes, and the Huns under Attila continuously sacked Rome. They would come in, they would riot, they would take a few high priests and nobles hostage and say, give us some gold and some food and we'll go away for six months to a year. <laughs> and that's basically what happened. And, you know, everything comes full circle. Who was the founder of Rome? Who was the first king of Rome? It was Romulus. Who was the last emperor of Rome? It was the child emperor Romulus Augustus. Talk about having a lot of pressure under you. You name Romulus Augustus. It's like naming your kid, oh, God, like, you know, Bill Murray. <laughs> trying to think of another funny guy. Uh, Bill Murray, Keanu Reeves, and expecting him to be an actor. Like, I, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. I don't know. But the child emperor, Romulus Augustus, was deposed in 476 CE. And at that point, the Western or what many history books just list as just the Roman emperor, Empire, fell. Or did it? Because this is the newest hot-button issue in uh, antiquity historians, is when did Rome actually end? When did the empire actually fall? So Diocletian had broken up the empire into east and west. So in 476... AD, the western part of the empire fell. And so because of that, you see 476 AD, 476 CE, depending on the book, listed as the end of the Roman Empire. It's also when the city itself finally fell the last time. And this also corresponds roughly to uh, the medieval times, the, what we call the Dark Ages, coming to Western Europe. So, okay, this all sort of adds up. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Of course For starters... Is. What's that? Of course it is. Of course it is. For starters, the Eastern Emperor Zeno didn't even formally abolish the Western Empire until 480 CE. So he waited four more years before going, yep, it's definitely dead. It's not coming back. <laughs> more importantly than that, the Eastern Roman Empire, what we all study in school as the Byzantine Empire, survived, even thrived for a while, and carried on numerous Roman traditions, was seated in the Roman capital of Constantinople, and that didn't fall until 1453, when it was seized by the Ottoman Turks. The Ottoman Turks then became the Ottoman Empire. They renamed Constantinople to Istanbul, but they kept a lot of the Roman trappings, simply replacing Christianity with Islam. They also claim to be the Roman successors. And there's a lot of evidence for this, more so with the Byzantine Empire, but also with the Ottomans and with Islam, 
Because, of course, where did a lot of the scientific discoveries come out of during the so-called Dark Ages? It all came out of the Middle East. You have Arabic numerals, astrology, a lot of math. That all came out of the Islamic empires while Europe was just sort of dithing around going, oh, no, Rome is gone. (laughs) So you could certainly make all these arguments. And if you do that, if you believe that the Ottoman Empire were the successors of Rome, they didn't fall until the end of World War I. It was 1922 that the Ottoman Empire was dissolved. And then this doesn't even get into what we're going to talk about next week, the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) Which is its own regime. Which is its own regime, but considers itself to be the uh, successors to Rome. And there's some evidence to that. All these so-called successors have some evidence. They still exist today. 2,000 plus years later. So when did the Roman Empire actually fall? It's just easier to say 476 AD. That doesn't necessarily make it right. And at this point, it's actually a fun internet meme uh, to just pick a random old uh, empire and just say Empire X are the true successors of Rome. Usually the the more ridiculous, the better for comedic purposes. <laughs> so that's a fun little thing if you're in a lot of Roman history groups on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, one final note. You'll notice I did not say anything in this about the so-called Holy Roman Empire. And the reason for that is simple. As everyone knows, say it with me now, folks. The Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman Roman. nor an empire. (laughs) So we're not even going to touch that one. But So there you go. There is 700 and some years, 500 and some years, however long we went through in one week. We've done better part of 1,200 years in two weeks. And next week, we are going to touch on the lasting fingerprints of Rome that you could still see today. Oh, I'm excited for that. So Questions, wh- my boy. Wh- where, where do you fall on the when did the Roman Empire end? Do you, do you follow the 476, or do you think like it's, it's, it's nuanced? I mean, it's very nuanced. I think I could see why people say 476, because... The Byzantine Empire, while it was very similar and did carry on a lot of the traditions of Rome, was also very different and was constantly evolving. And, I mean, you have to evolve to last for another, God, what, thousand years, almost 1,100 years. The Roman Empire, though, at that point was about 1,120-some years old, and the Byzantine Empire would last about another 1,050 on top of it. So you have to evolve. That being said... The Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, was part of Rome. It had a lot of the bureaucracy, a lot of the institutions, a lot of the offices. It had the capital for a while. Uh, you know, they got on good with the Pope later on. You see a lot with the Crusades, which is a whole other thing. That might be another three-parter we do in a later season. If we're really feeling ambitious, we can talk about the Crusades. Holy shit. I have fucking thoughts uh, about the Crusades. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, as you should. So, I mean, really, if you want to be technical, yes, it's the 1400s. Um, and, you know, sadly, you know, the, the city has fallen and I'm still alive. The, the famous quote of the, the last Byzantine Empire, the last Roman Emperor. Uh, but again, it's easier to say 476 AD. And really, 476 AD was the end of an era. Was it the end of everything? No. 
But especially if you're studying Western Europe, especially if you're studying Western civilization, uh, that's really it. And then you begin the Medieval Ages, you begin the Dark Ages. If you're looking at world history as a whole, as antiquity as a whole, no, it's the 1450s. Interesting. In my opinion. I, I feel like we could do an episode alone on Caligula and Nero, but, like, give me, like, a couple of sentences on each of, like, things that might be interesting to know about them that people might not know. Uh, Caligula took the Son of Mars thing very seriously because as the empire, uh, as the, the office of emperor, the title of emperor and the trappings and infrastructure around it continued and evolved, uh, they much, you know, we talked about Romulus, according to the story, was the son of Mars, was the son of the god of war. So that began to be said that that was a uh, part of being emperor. Just all emperors are divine. All emperors are from uh, the son of Mars. So, okay, that's fun. He took that very literally, however, and he used to brag about being the son of Mars, whereas everyone else just kind of, you know, took it like it was uh, a title for what it was. Uh, As I said, he... uh, also had them attack the sea. He declared war on Neptune, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Uh, he did do some public reforms. He did actually uh, do some construction. Most of it's ridiculous. I mean, he famously had a giant ship built. And when I mean like giant ship, like think like battleship size, but during Roman Empire because he's, you know, nuts. Um, But he was actually also open. Uh, He started publishing accounts of what the government was doing with public funds, which that had been very behind the curtain. Uh, You know, nobody had really seen it before that. So that was different. So it wasn't all bad. Of course, he's ruined now because they made the the porno uh, about him. (laughs) <laughs> Which, weirdly enough, stars Helen Mirren, actually. <laughs> porno about Caligula? Oh, yeah, it was a made, it was a, a widespread release porno film. Because in the 70s, and this is one thing I do want to do an episode on, in the 70s in America, porn actually became mainstream. And you have porno movies in regular theaters, and you have Johnny Carson talking openly about going to see Deep Throat in the monologue of The Tonight Show. Huh. This is actually referred to by historians as porno chic. Uh, And Caligula was one of these movies. It was funded by the Guccione family, who uh, owned Penthouse at the time. And it's just basically a hardcore porn set during Roman times uh, that's roughly a biography of Caligula in between. Do you remember when we were in college, DJ? I'm sure you didn't watch it, but do you remember all the jokes and the memes about the quote-unquote pirate porn? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Imagine the, yeah, imagine the pirate porn, but in the 70s. Woof. And in Rome. That's, that's what Caligula was. But Helen Mirren was one of the actresses in it. And not only does she admit it and everything, she actually doesn't care. Like, she'll do interviews about it and talk about it and everything. Like, yeah, I had fun, whatever. We fucked. Who cares? <laughs> Which, wow. good honor, you know. But that's all anybody thinks of when they say Caligula now, is they just think of the really shitty porn. Uh, of course, with Nero, everyone thinks of the Great Fire. Look, we, Nero probably didn't cause the fire. It's 
yes, he wanted to do an ambitious building project. Yes, he wanted to do what we now call urban renewal. Remember, if you tear down the slums, you're bad. If you do urban renewal, you're good. <laughs> um, and yes, he began building almost immediately after the fire. But, I mean, you have to understand, every, most of the merchant shops back then, they were wood frame, they were timber, they used oil lamps, they had straw for animals, they sold shit that was flammable, a lot of the seating in, like, the Colosseum and the Circus Max, but they were all wood. Like, shit would go up. Like, these old cities were tinderboxes. Yes, you had a lot of marble. You had a lot of clay. You had a lot of terracotta. You had a lot of fucking wood, too. <laughs> so, did he cause the fire? No, probably not. Did he take advantage of the situation? Absolutely. <laughs> he used it to his advantage to... uh you know, begin his ambitious building process. He used it to his advantage to begin a massive persecution of Christians who he blamed solely for the fire. Uh, there's the famous story, you know, while Rome burned, Nero fiddled. No, he played He played the, the what is it, the lute. He didn't play the, the fiddle necessarily. And we don't even know if that's actually true. That's just what his enemies said, that he just stood around playing music while the city burned. And he very well could have. The city, the great fire of Rome took almost eight days. The city was burning for the better part of eight days. Jesus. So it's entirely possible that at some point he was on his balcony playing music. But no, he didn't send the legions in to burn the town down and then fiddle away like fucking Charlie Daniels while it was happening. Uh, but no, that's, yeah, good and bad. You know, for every Marcus Aurelius who still studied in philosophy and leadership classes today, you have a Nero or a Caligula. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I'm looking forward to next week talking about, like, where the legends, like, left off. And uh, I, I one of the things I want to research next week is how some of, like, the, the Roman heroes and the Roman Empire influenced Arthurian legend. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. There, 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 there's definitely something there. Oh, there's overlap. And I mean, you know, the, the Romans made it all the way up basically to Scotland. And then they fought a bunch of naked, dung-covered uh, Celts. And they <laughs> went, nope. And they built Hadrian's Wall right across all of England and went, you stay the fuck on your side of that wall. <laughs> and we're going to stay the fuck over here. <laughs> you crazy fuckers. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, and the Scottish to this day are very proud of that fact, as they should be. Yeah. Um, you know, the there's a few places that defeated Rome fairly consistently. Uh, Germania, which, of course, is Germany, being, it, you know, the, the crazy barbaric hordes of Germany. But Rome kept going. They kept trying to take over Germany or at the very least make alliances with some of the tribes. Scotland, after a while, they're just like, nope, fuck it, don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing send all the stone we need to build a huge fucking wall <laughs> the biggest wall ever built in history to this point <laughs> the great wall of get the fuck out Scotland <laughs> yeah the great wall of psycho no <laughs> I I love every time the Celts crop up in, in fiction I really should read a historical account at some point they were yeah, you don't want to fuck with the Celts. <laughs> <laughs> we 
we could do an episode uh, on the Celts. We, we could probably do a two-parter on the Celts. Eh? You don't you don't fuck with the Celts. Oh man, Celtic uh, mythology is one of my favorites. I mean, as it should be. I mean, there's a lot, there's a deep tapestry of Celtic culture. There really is. I mean, you don't fuck with a culture that has the Morrigan. No, it's just bad news. Like, why are you trying to pick a fight with them? No. (laughs) Well, I think that wraps up our part two. I'm saving some of my stuff for next week so we can talk legends. And and I, I, I think we should touch on the Dark Ages, but I feel like the Dark Ages could honestly be its own episode, too. The Dark Ages can honestly be its own episode. I've been doing a lot of reading in my spare time lately on the bubonic plague Ooh. and or plagues because there's quite a bit of new research on what exactly that might have been. And so if we ever do an episode or episodes on that, we can certainly get heavy into the Dark Ages and why Dark Age Europe and its culture really just fed diseases in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of very bad medical practice back then. <laughs> yeah, and just a lot of really terrible jobs. Like, there were people who just literally kept poking the shit down the... Uh, they're not even sewers, just gutters, so that they could flow into the river. Like, if you were lived in London, you didn't have sewers or anything, so you'd empty your chamber pots into the gutter in the street, and then hopefully the rainwater and everything would take it, and it would flow into the River Thames. Um, but if it was the summer, or if you didn't have enough water or whatever, they actually had guys with sticks who were paid by the city to just force the shit down the gutters. What? And wouldn't you know it that uh, there's a lot of bacteria in human poop, and uh, bacteria leads to disease. I was born in the right era, I think. Dude, I'm not nearly as squeamish as you are, and I read some of this shit, and I'm like, nope. <laughs> but it's just nope. Um, but, hey, it, at the time, it was what it was. I mean, I, I just love the... I, although, if I went back in time, and now we're really getting off track, but if I was in the Dark Ages, the Dark Ages probably had the coolest job you could have, though. Oh? It was Barbara Surgeon. Oh, Jesus. Your barber also did, like, boils and moles and, like, leech bleedings and shit. Sure, but it's... They were also a huge part of the bad medical culture back then, Mark. Well, they were. But, I mean, how cool is it that you're not a doctor, you're a barber, but you're also a surgeon? (laughs) Like, you know, like, the old man's a mechanic, and then in his spare time, he's a Renaissance painter. Like, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. <laughs> Paintbrushes and screwdrivers are not the same thing. No. Like, okay, I get it. You're using a razor blade to shave somebody. I don't want you digging out a mole that I have on the back of my neck. Like, They also I mean, did a lot of dentistry. They did. Yeah, and people died a lot of tetanus and blood poisoning, too. But, you yeah. know, hey... <laughs> Well, that wraps up part two of Ancient Roman Whiskey. Uh, we'll be back next week with our third uh, our third part. Ho- I think it's just three. I it's think probably going to be just three. It's I mean, depending on how long we ramble next week, we might have to break it up, but it's we're planning on it being we're, three. We're planning on having a different topic for the last episode of this season, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we're planning on doing something a little bit lighthearted for the last episode of the season, and then... Uh, you know, we'll take our little break, do some more trailers, and then I, I, 
I mean, we haven't said anything, but we're, we're coming back with season five. I yeah, mean, yeah, so. we'll probably do season five, yeah. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of shit we want to talk about. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Yeah, and fuck knows there's still a pandemic, and we're all, most of us are still working from home, so it's, yeah. it's worth Everything's still going. digital, everything's still virtual, and people seem to still be listening, so hey, thank y'all. You keep listening, we'll keep doing them. What the fuck? Yeah, so of course, thank you, listener, for... for uh, spending some time with us today on our increasingly longer episodes as we go this season. You've heard of power creep. Well, here we are. Um, but thank you. Subscribe, uh, you know, give us a rating on iTunes, pre-save us on Spotify. We, we want to thank all of our new listeners. It sounds like we, we may have gotten a small, uh, European fan base somehow. So, uh, thank you all to everyone across the pond. Um, we want to remind you about our website where we are probably behind on getting some blog posts up there. Uh, that's the wit and whiskey cast.com. Uh, we're, uh, at Gmail. If you want to recommend any whiskeys or some topics you'd love us to dive into, uh, that is the wit and whiskey cast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the wit and whiskey cast. There's no H in wit and an E in whiskey, despite what Mark might tell you next week. <laughs> we are all over the place. Uh, we uh, dump right into your ears right on Friday mornings at 8 a.m. Ooh, phrasing. <laughs> I mean, that puts a lot of pressure on me. What if I get scared and I can't perform first thing in the morning? I mean, come on now. Well, that's fine. That's why we schedule it. <laughs> that makes it worse somehow. <laughs> Just keep going. We, of course, want to thank Nuno Henry Silva for the use of our intro and outro music. Uh, so thank you, buddy. We'll uh, be sending you a SoundCloud in, in our show notes. Uh, check out that second book of his that came out. It, it's pretty damn good. It's some nice light reading. Uh, the, and those, uh, those short stories, those poems, are uh, they're just good. There's a, it's just nice to you know read one here and there, be able to put it down, come back to it the next night. So check that out, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you next week for part three. Until then, cheers. Salute.